This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Dr. Helen Rappaport, who is a Sunday Times and New York Times bestselling author and historian specializing in the period 1837 through 1918 in late imperial and revolutionary Russia and Victorian Britain. She has written 14 books, including The Romanov Sisters, The Last Days of the Romanovs, and many other critically acclaimed titles. Her books have covered a broad range of historical knowledge, and is a re- and she is a regular contributor to history and documentary programs for TV, radio, and online media such as Netflix. As a historical cons- consultant, she most recently worked on the first two series of the ITV drama Victoria. As a linguist with a degree in Russian special studies, she has also worked for many years as a literal translator in the theater, specializing in the plays of Anton Chekhov. In 2016, she was awarded an honorary D-Lit by her old alma mater, Leeds University, for her services in history. She has been a full-time writer for and in 2003, discovered and purchased an 1869 portrait of Mary Seacole that now hangs in the National Portrait Gallery. Today, we will be discussing her new book, In Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Black Cultural Icon and Humanitarian. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Rappaport. Hello, thank you. I should update you on one thing. My website needs um, amending because I've now written 17 books, actually. Well, that is even more impressive to say (laughs) that right now. I'm just getting my web designer to update everything. Yes, I I published two books last year, including Mary Seacole, and I've just finished writing my 17th. Congratulations on that very, very remarkable feat that you have accomplished. Now, so with Mary Seacon, Mary Seacole, excuse me, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Well, the book, the actual biography, um, is very much the, the end product of a 20 plus years search it is i mean it's a corny cliche to use the word quest but it really was a quest to track down her story because um so much of black history in in so many parts of black history the evidence is lacking it's been lost or it was never there in the first place because people didn't bother to keep documentary records particularly in the west indies so I spent 20 years on and off um, pursuing Mary's story, filling in little 
tiny snippets of information as I went along. So it was like constructing an enormous jigsaw puzzle. And every few months, every few years, I'd add a few more pieces to the puzzle. So in many ways, it was not like sitting down and and writing a conventional biography from A to B because there were so many interruptions and gaps and things I had to ponder and figure out, gaps I couldn't fill, uh, questions that remained unresolved. So I guess to sum it up, in many ways, it's it's an investigation into a life, almost a detective trail. That you accomplished very well. How did you first, you say 20 plus years, how did you first become interested in Mary Seacole? Well, this goes right back to, let me think, uh, about 2000. Um, when I was asked by a U.S. publisher called ABC Clio, you may have heard of they publish a lot of academic reference and books for libraries and colleges and institutions. They don't particularly market their books because they, they publish direct to libraries and is, and the university network. Well, I, they at the time had a branch in Oxford and I knew the managing director of it um, because I lived in Oxford and I'd done some freelance work for him. So he asked me to do a book on women's social reformers. And uh, one of the objectives I set out to achieve with that book, and it, it ended up being an enormous two-volume reference work and with over 400 women in it, and I researched and wrote all, all the entries. But within that, um, the parameters of the book, I wanted to include as many new and unknown women, women of colour, women in Africa and Asia, and in places where no one had really bothered to look and uncover their stories. And in order to include Mary, okay, she wasn't a social reformer, but she was a pioneer in her own way, a pioneer of nursing and caregiving. So I stretched my terms of reference a bit in order to be able to include Mary because I had found not much information on her, but enough to know that she should be included as an important figure uh, from the West Indies. So I put her into the book. And at the time, I remember thinking, there's got to be a lot more to this story. I only had the bare bones. And I freely admit now the entry I wrote on her 22 years ago is not very good because I knew so little and there wasn't much available then. But I decided then and there I wanted to pursue her story. So I started digging about and started doing research on her, filling in the gaps. And I got rather bitten by her her story, and particularly the Crimean War experience, because, of course, Crimean War has always been a special interest of mine. So I I initially put together an idea for a biography of her way back. But, of course, in the early 2000s, I was bluntly told, no one's interested in black history and you'll never sell it and things like that. So I decided rather stubbornly that I would just carry on uh, researching Mary almost as a hobby, as and when I, I, you know, I had time to pursue it in between um, doing work for money. So really, I kept niggling away at it for many years, and then periodically, every five years or so, would try and see if I could sign a biography, but it always failed to happen. 
you persisted and here we are now in yeah i did persist <laughs> it took 20 years to get the book signed I, I wonder if that's a record and i'm very very grateful to simon and schuster in the uk and to pegasus in in america for signing the book um because the one thing that really upset me and i'm sure this is something other researchers share is the feeling that I'd spend all those years piecing together her story, meticulously searching for evidence, finding a lot of, of new material, but not having an outlet for it. And there's nothing worse than the thought of all your research going unpublished or unseen by others. And, and worst of all, of course, not being able to share it with other historians who might gain useful enlightenment from, from the research. That is very true. And I am one to say, as a historian of um, 18th, 19th century Black women, I appreciate your endeavors and your detective work and laying out more of Mary's life for us to be able to understand the complexities of it. And, you know, what you produced is an amazing piece of work um, that you created. And it's something that is useful to, you know, the per se general audience, but also academics, you know, undergrads and grad students. There are ways that we can definitely take a look at this biography because it is something that is very important. Well, um, I also to have to, I have to say the way in which I wrote it as an investigation was in a way um, I wanted to kind of create almost a kind of methodology for how you search for an, a, a very obscure and hidden life. I wanted other scholars um, to be able to see that the way in which I tracked Mary down, the wet places I looked, the you know the dead ends that I hit, the way in which I figured things out, because the actual process I've found in in my experience, readers are very interested in. I often get asked, "Where did you find that story? How did you work it out? How did you find out those facts and information?" People love to know about the process, and so that's why. I wrote it in that particular format. I and wanted, it's very yeah, I wanted to take the reader with me through the process of discovery. And you did. It was a journey as you started, and the frustrations that were there, but then those wonderful findings also. That is a part of the process of being a historian there are ups and there are downs to this process it's not all as you say straightforward there are many ways that this can go um and you have unexpected results sometimes things that you didn't imagine that you would find along the way um which is kind of what happened with the portrait that hangs in the national gallery that you came across via a military historian via another outlet. And so how did you find Mary's portrait that graces, you know, um, that hangs in the natural? Well, this is a very long and complicated story, and I can't relay it all now because it would take too long. But basically, someone approached me knowing that I was working on Mary Seacole, 
Uh, he was an actual medals historian, and he had been approached by someone else who was a friend of someone else. It's quite a, you know, there's quite a trail. Um, but he was approached to confirm whether this portrait of a black woman wearing medals could possibly be Mary Seacole. And Norman had contacted me because he knew I was working on Mary. And I, when I saw the JPEG of the painting, I immediately knew it was her was not a doubt in my mind. And, of course, then I embarked on a kind of hair-raising eight-month journey trying to get get hold of it and save it. I mean, it sounds pompous, but not quite save it for the nation. But I wanted to be sure that the painting didn't get sold and disappear into an air-conditioned vault somewhere or go abroad. So I, I'm my mission, right from the moment I knew the painting existed was to ensure that it somehow I got it, got hold of it, or, or, or uh, you know, arranged somehow to get it into one of our na- major museums. And of course, its obvious home was the National Portrait Gallery, which had a room full of pictures of people from the Crimean War, including Florence Nightingale. So it was a very, very up and down period trying to get hold of it because. It had come through a rather murky trail originating from what we call a boot sale in America. You call them yard sales, I think. But boot sales and boot sales are much bigger events where people drive their cars to a field and unload stuff they want to sell. And it had been picked up there by an art dealer or a dealer who actually, when he bought it, didn't even know the painting was there because it actually was backing another picture. And it's only because by a fluke he decided to open the back of the, the picture and check check it properly that he noticed that, that the painting of Mary was actually facing inside. So it was a miracle it was even discovered. But he just sold it on for a quick buck to this other dealer who then thought, well, it might be Mary Seacob, but he didn't really know anything about it. So he, through a friend of a friend, contact they, they contacted me and... Basically, in the end, I managed to get enough money together to borrow the money from the bank to buy it because I wanted to ensure that that portrait was where other people could see it and share in it. It was hugely significant to me also that it was there for the black community, the black British community, uh, as part of their heritage in in. In Britain, because Mary in 2004 was, of course, voted greatest Black Britain. So anyway, I took the I I didn't have the portrait at home very long. I had it eventually. I had it on my wall for about two weeks, and then I took it to the National Portrait Gallery and left it on permanent loan with them. And they immediately went off and x-rayed it and did pigment tests and this, that and the other. Because the important thing about the portrait, which was dated on the back, 1869, was that it was painted contemporaneously with Mary and not posthumous. So they confirmed all the tests showed that it was the right period. And I left it with them and it was on display uh, and now the National Portrait Gallery, of course, has been massively revamped, and I, I'm dying to go and see Mary in her new, newly revamped position. 
Wow, that is so amazing, you know, and you're right, you were able to purchase it and put it in the National Gallery so others, especially, as you mentioned, Black Britons would be able to see someone um, that is a part of their heritage, which is very, very important. And as you mentioned, 2004, she was voted um, number one Black Britain, which is so amazing when you think about it, I guess, because, you know, as an Americanist, we're on the other side of the Atlantic. We don't, you know, have this idea of Mary Seacole, but she is there. And she is, as you noted in your title, she is an icon um, in so many ways, but it's defining her and who she is that what you did in your biography was so masterful because where I'm going with this question is source basis. And you are, you take us on that investigative journey. And as you mentioned, you know, there, there's her narrative. There's that. There is her narrative, the wonderful adventures of Mary C. Cole and me, but you know, it's very, very. It's all we have. <clears throat> And unfortunately, I do get very irritated when people refer to it as an autobiography, which, of course, it isn't. It only covers just over five years of Mary's life. She skips past her early life in about two and a half pages. Her marriage is dismissed in about two paragraphs. Um, the book fundamentally is an account of her experiences in the Crimean War, and it was written with a particular objective in mind, which was, first of all, to write about that war, which very much was in living memory because she wrote the book in 56, 57 when she got back from Crimea. But fundamentally, it was to produce a good popular account of herself and her time, her time in Crimea for the popular market to get her out of debt because she came back from the Crimean War completely broke. Right. And it's something, you know, and I am so glad you said that. It is there. It's she skips over so much of her life. There is her childhood. There's no mention of it really in Jamaica. That doesn't happen. Her marriage, that it's really not talked about. And that's something that I found as I've been working um, with various narratives about this whole, and there's an idea, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, Darlene Clark Hines, she had this, um, she had a specific term for a culture of dissimilance, whereas by black women, most often they hide that part of themselves, especially away from public consumption. Purposely. Well, Mary and had to do that. That She had no option but to hide, first of all, the fact of her illegitimacy, her mixed heritage origins, the fact that she came from a very loose uh, extended family in Jamaica where no one ever married anybody and all the ch children pretty much were illegitimate. But that was the norm in Jamaica at the time. You know, white military implanters and people went out, formed relationships with women of colour and black women. Very, very rarely married. Ma Mary was quite an exception in that she did marry a white man. Um, Mary had to hide all of that from her very shockable Victorian audience, of course, because, you know, there's no way she could have sold that book talking. Uh, and that's why she doesn't even tell us the names of her parents. It's to draw a veil 
over that part of the story, so it couldn't really be identified and her ex- her exposed as having come from a sort of irregular background. Right, because you're right. You're completely accurate there because we are talking about Victorian England and the purpose as to why this was, as you say, people say autobiography, but it's not. It was a purpose was for her to get out of debt. Yeah, I remember her patron. Her patrons in Britain were all white, very shockable, middle-class, straight-laced, church-going whites. Now, she, a free-spirited Jamaican woman, had come from a very, very different kind of background to that. And she couldn't really engage a white audience with any of that stuff. That would be impossible. I mean, because if you're thinking about the time when this is published and everything that's going on, you know, most Victorians, their ideas, especially about Black society, have to do with big during that time, Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, because we're thinking across the Atlantic and, you know, even that was somewhat shocking, yet it was shocking in a sense that it was towards the abolitionist movement during that period. So um, the idea of, and that's something that we'll get into a little bit later, this idea of she doesn't really talk about slavery. That's not even, and not in the British That wasn't context. her brief. That wasn't her objective. She was not writing an abolitionist tract. She was writing a commercial memoir to make money and get herself out of debt and also just tell people of her achievements in Crimea, of which she was very proud. Yes. I mean, she did. And we'll get into that in a few moments, but let's delve just a little bit into actually from your biography, who Mary was. You mentioned her parents. She does not talk about that. Um, Who were her parents? Her mother, as you said, was someone of mixed race. Um, Her father, white during this time, but those relationships, as you know, were common during this period in history, especially in Jamaica. Well, the puzzle of Mary's parentage is one I couldn't totally resolve. There are no records. She doesn't give us a single clue except to say that her father was Scottish, a Scottish soldier. And various people in the past 25 years ago and chasing off after finding the right Scottish soldier at the right time in Jamaica around the time of when Mary was conceived, i.e. about 1804-5. And, you know, people have posited, in fact, one author in particular posited the wrong man, which I um, discuss in my book. I'm still not 100% certain I found the right father because all we know is his name was Grant, which was quite common because illegitimate children in Jamaica did take the father's name. They did tend to take the father's name, particularly if the father was a white man. Her mother was probably mixed heritage, Rebecca Grant, but she was a free woman. Um, They weren't married. She had the same name, Grant. But I should point out that Grant was an extremely common name in Jamaica. And Rebecca was probably given that name by her former slave master, you know, she might have, who might have emancipated her, you know. Um, We just don't know. There is nothing 
to substantiate really much about her parents. So I think I tracked her father down. It would boil down to two possible John Grants. But the only reason I was even able to get that far with the parents' names, John and Rebecca, was only because after many, many years of searching, I finally found Mary's mature Roman Catholic baptism because there is no Anglican baptism for her around 18405 that fits. So I don't think she was baptised as a baby, but certainly later, even if she'd been brought up as sort of Anglican Church of England, later in 1848, she she did officially uh, uh, embrace the Catholic faith. That she did, and it's interesting, you know, she doesn't, as we know, touch on her parents, you know, and she does mention a sibling because she goes to visit her brother um, in Panama. But you noted that there were other siblings as well. There was a much large, and I know there's a sister. I was aware of that, um, Louisa, from Anthony Trollope, his um, I remember her, but you note that there were other siblings that she had. Well, um, this is a huge problem with Mary. First of all, she didn't admit to any of them in her book, except I think in once she talked about her sister. Um, the sister, in fact, was a half-sister that Trollope met. That's Louisa Grant. Uh, through my very, very hard research over many years, I find, and with the help of a Jamaican genealogist during COVID because I couldn't get out to Jamaica. I think I finally pinned down Louisa as a half-sibling. But there were several other half-siblings, at least three or or maybe four, um, all born by different men, all fathered by different men. Edward, the one, the brother who went to Panama um, and and encouraged Mary to join him there, is a half-sibling. I'm not certain of his father. There was another sister I did pin down, and I was very proud about that, and that was Amelia. I actually did find her uh, her marriage. And there's an interesting story attached to Amelia. I won't say it here because it kind of is a bit of a spoiler. Right, we don't want to spoil. We want everyone to read this. But basically, (laughs) Mary had at least two other half-sisters, and possibly um, three half-brothers. I'm not 100% sure. There are no marriages and there aren't always any baptisms. And it's <clears throat> it's a mountain to climb trying to prove any family relationships in that period. Well, and it's, you know, it's so interesting because there's this concept of who Mary Seacole is just from what little you know of her. And of course, you know, the internet, it's always rabid with speculations um, as to who she is. But there is another figure that you were able to tease out, and that is Mr. Seacole. Well, Mr. Seacole, you see, the thing with Mary, uh, with the husband and the absent siblings, the absent parents is Mary is the star of her own story. And, 
And although she had to be economical with the truth about half-siblings and illegitimacy and this, that, the other, I think she consciously um, sort of airbrushed them all out because they were not relevant. It's her story. And she's very egocentric in that way, in the way she presents the book. But Mr. Seeker, well, he's fascinating because Mary doesn't tell the reader anything about him. She doesn't, and you will note, she doesn't even tell the reader Mr. Seacole was white. No, she does not. I mean, the Victorians might have assumed that Mr. Seacole was black because in the book, you know, he he's sickly he and he's dead by, uh, you know, 1844, and she's, you know, he's been and gone in, in a page. So she deliberately airbrushed him completely out the story. But what was so interesting is that I'm an avid genealogist. I've done a lot of genealogical research. And I thought, well, with a name like Seacol, I'm going to research that. I want to know where that family was from. And I did a lot of work on the Seacols, and they are the most interesting uh, naval family uh, from Essex. And I did a, a huge amount of genealogy. I've got their family tree all figured out. And he was one of several siblings. And he and a brother actually went out to Jamaica as West India merchants, probably in the 1820s or so. Uh, other brothers were in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic War period. And it's a, But she doesn't tell the reader any of that, which is a shame, really because they're actually quite a fascinating family in their own right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. She just glosses over him, but like you said, she wants to be the star of... Yes! This is her show. It's not Mr. C. Cole's show. This is hers and hers alone. And, you know, the you have to also wonder what her feelings were of the marriage in general, you know, because she says nothing about it, you know, and she does admit he was very ill. Um, she had to take care of him and assist him. So, you know, I think it was a marriage of convenience. It was extremely rare in the period in which they married, which was, I think, about 1834, for any white man to marry a woman of colour. Extremely rare. But Mr. Seacole did marry Mary. He gave her respectability. It gave her a massive leg up in Jamaican society to actually have a white husband. But I think there was a trade-off, and the trade-off was he was sickly, suffered, I think, with the uh, humid Jamaican climate. And uh, basically, the deal was Mary looked after him. She was a very capable nurse. She was an extremely good cook. She'd run a boarding house. You know, she was a good caregiver in every sense of the word. And that was the trade-off, I think. You know, he gave her his name and respectability, and she looked after him. Right. 
and she did until his death, which you says occurs a page later, um, <laughs> which is so interesting. It's like, okay, he's here, he's sickly, and then next she moves on. Yes, he has passed away, and off she goes. You know, she it's at that point. You know, it's been, and she mentions um, her mother had passed away as well. And she mentions there is, um, I believe, a fire. And there she goes. She's off again, which leads me to the next topic. You know, she was an avid traveler. I mean, she traveled from a very young age. And she was across the Atlantic many times going places. I think it's amazing when you think about how many times Mary sailed the Atlantic, which I reckoned was about nine times. Now, she started sailing the Atlantic in the 1820s when uh, it was real old sailing ships and the hazardous journey. I mean... I don't know what the the percentage risk of actually ending up shipwrecked or drowned was, but she travelled right through the era uh, of the development of the paddle steamer and the screw steamer. So later on, she went on much more efficient ships, but she initially sailed the Atlantic on real old sailing ships. She was an incredibly intrepid traveller. She also sailed all around the Caribbean. She sailed down to Panama and, of course, when she got to England, she sailed on another 3,000 miles to Crimea, to, to the peninsula, to the Black Sea. So travel was in her blood. She loved traveling. And I think that's why she gave her book that title, The Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands. And it was, and she was. I mean, she did not stop. She was constantly going and doing things. But it wasn't just that she was going and just traveling, but she was also a businesswoman as well, a very savvy businesswoman as well as she was going through her travel, especially um, as she goes down to England, as, when she goes to England as a trader, but also as she's going to Panama, she sets up a couple of businesses, kind of. Um, they're not, they were not what we would call hotel hotels, but she set up places because, as you know, with Panama during this time, there's that wonderful gold rush. Um, and so she's capitalizing on that. Mary was always good to spot a business opportunity. And it's very interesting. In the many years um, that I've been studying her life, some people feel terribly uncomfortable with the fact that she was a, a very a, accomplished businesswoman, was always looking out to make a living, as well as being a very good nurse and caregiver. People feel she should have just been this glorious, saintly vocational nurse, and that the business side of things sort of tarnishes you know, the halo around her. But I don't feel that way at all because it was being a woman of business, being enterprising and making and doing and uh, provisioning and cooking, that she made the money in order to have the funding to to help people in need when they were sick. I agree. Without her economic savvy, she would not have been able to get herself to the peninsula to be a humanitarian that she was. Um, and she proved her business acrim with all of the wonderful enterprises she set up. And that's who she was. Um, 
And that was part of her identity. It is. And it was something she was just as proud of, I'm sure, because, you know, everyone admired her cooking. She was much sought after in Crimea for her pies and puddings and, and, and her hot dinners, her wonderful cooling sangria drinks in in summer. She prided herself on those gifts as much as her her nursing skills and her pharmaceutical skills of mixing medicines and helping the sick, stitching a wound. You know, she could take out a bullet and stitch a knife wound as good as anyone because she'd been through the experience of Panama, which was completely gun law wild west at the time. She's there during the gold rush. When you say it is the wild west, there was like... There was lack of law and order. It didn't really exist there because some of the, I remember um, there were notions that she was talking about. There were gunfights that were going on and it was just, it was very, very different. It was Um, a very dangerous and inhospitable place for any woman to go to at that time. And you've got to admire her guts. Uh, to go out there because people were dying like flies of disease in across the isthmus and and then there was the gun law and the or you know the redneck uh, the 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 um the gold prospectors going through through were very fiercely competitive and and rough and ready so it was a not a, a safe place to be no but yet she survived and she, you know she came out of it but then of course she heard about what was going on with the war and she wanted to, of course, get there um, to serve. The reason she wanted so badly to get uh, to England to volunteer for the war effort stems from her time back in Kingston in Jamaica, running a, a boarding house, a lodging house, where many of the military based in Jamaica, the officer classes, uh, like to board with Mary rather than stay up in the army camp, which was pretty rough and ready. And also, when they got sick with fevers, many of them would go to Mary's lodging house to be nursed by her and have her 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 herbal, herbal remedies. So she got to know a lot of the regiments that had been based in the West Indies. And when she heard some of them were being sent out to, well, at the time she didn't even know it was Crimea, were being sent to the east to fight against Russia, she wanted to get out there and look after her sons. She called them her sons. She looked upon the British Army as a sort of great big extended family of her own because as such she didn't have children, though I think she did have a daughter. Yeah, I think so. We'll get to that. Uh, but she she considered them her sons, and she wanted to serve. And so she goes to England to actually try the official channels to get there, but she is turned away. Um, and it's, do you believe that was tied to race, or were there some other factors that were going on, you would think? I think I think it's pretty clear that it was entirely racist reasons that for which Mary was turned down. But also, I should add that when by the time she 
got to England to volunteer, the first group, I think the first group of Nightingale nurses were pretty much, uh, had been organised and were on their way. So she had kind of missed the boat, as it were, although later groups of nurses were sent. But I think it was fundamentally racist attitudes because there, uh, uh, in the records in the National Archives, there are application letters surviving from two other West Indian women who also volunteered to nurse and who were also turned down. And one of them specifically, it was written on her application that she was perceived as being too black and that she might frighten the patients. Now, that's literally what was said. So there's clear racial prejudice in operation there. But, of course, the... (laughs) The the antithesis of that is the minute Mary got to Crimea and people knew she was there, huge numbers of people celebrated the fact that she'd arrived because these soldiers had known her in the West Indies and they all hot-footed down to Mary's establishment to get food and drink and, you know, medicines when they needed it. And they welcomed her with open arms. The rank and file, the ordinary soldiers loved her. Right. So how did she end up getting there? She funded her own way um, with a business partner. partner. partner, Thomas Day, who's again, an absolute cipher in her story, like Mr. Seagull. All we know, really, I mean, I found out a little bit more by some concerted digging. He very much was the businessman. He went ahead on another ship, got all the supplies, organized a lot of the construction of their premises, uh, got the permission from the British Army in Crimea uh, on where they could locate their storehouse come dispensary come whatever you want to call it. It wasn't a hotel. Uh, one of the biggest myths is that Mary grandly called it the British Hotel. She had initially had ambitions to set up a kind of recu- um a nursing home type hotel for wounded officers in Balaclava, but she never got permission for that. But she set up her establishment, which became a kind of glorified storehouse come officers club. And Thomas Day did all the toing and froing between there and Constantinople, getting in supplies and and organising things, while Mary did the hands-on business of day-to-day cooking and provisioning at the store. Um, She had a sort of informal clinic where anyone could turn up to get a dose of medicine if they got dysentery or needed something bandaging or something like that. So... Thomas Day, unfortunately, really is impossible to track because his name is just too common. Thomas Day, there are a million one, and and it's impossible to find him after the war. I think he ended up going off to Australia, but no one really knows, and I don't think we ever will know. Right, and it's interesting because, you know, it is. She has kind of like this place where it's you can get a little bit of medical treatment there, but you can get supplies. There's also a little bit of alcohol as well. A little bit, a, a rather lot of it, which um, Florence Nightingale fiercely disapproved of. And I think, and I think the foundation of Florence's incorrigible antipathy towards Mary was that she sold alcohol because Florence saw alcoholism as a really bad, well, it was endemic in the army. It really was the scourge of the army uh, and the military in general. And she abhorred um, drinking. Uh, 
And so that set her against Mary right from day one, part, apart from the fact that she also disapproved of her, her nursing methods and her pharmaceutical, sim, her herbal simples and her, her non-allopathic medical methods. She basically thought Mary was a quack. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that, like how Mary got her medical training, which was more herbal, holistic, and which is in Jamaica, and which is very different from the training that Florence Nightingale had, and but yet effective. Well, first of all, it wasn't training. There was no nursing training or medical training for women. Um, women's nursing as a profession was not set up until 1860 or so by Florence Nightingale after the war. Before that, women who nursed were mainly lay, lay, lay nuns and charitable from charitable organisations. So even Florence had only had three months induction in nursing at a place called Kaiserswerth in Germany, which was run by, I think, Lutheran Lutheran nuns. But anyway, so Mary's training was entirely learnt at her mother's knee, as were as was the, the 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 as were the skills of all the Jamaican nurses and doctresses who learned the same kind of herbal holistic skills as Mary. They, their, their methods were based on really methods devised to look after the sick enslaved people on the plantations using the natural pharmacopoeia. So there was a, an extraordinarily rich and diverse um natural um, pharmacopoeia in Jamaica that was drawn on extensively. People literally could go outside their door and pick the herbs and things that they needed. So Mary learnt the skills from her own mother, who'd been a doctress, and this was the term that was applied to women who originated from from the slave hospitals, as they were called, from, from the hothouses, where these women were trained, women of colour, were not trained really, just learnt the skills of how to mix medicines and look after the sick enslaved people. And many of those women later moved on into Kingston and the bigger towns in Jamaica and set up lodging houses where they then nursed the sick white naval and military and merchants who came and went and their families they also many of them were very skilled midwives as well and delivered their children so mary sprung from a very jamaican tradition that generally did not resort to allopathic medicine at all i mean she really did not approve of the use of opiates which were the mainstay of of, of standard medicine at the time It was very different um, what she learned and what she used. So officially, you know, there's this, and I really, it bugs the crap out of me, this conflict that they said between, and there are always comparisons between her and Florence Nightingale, that they were quote unquote rivals and there's all this draw and it drives me crazy because it's crazy because it's a completely phony comparison and i i get very angry with it because it's a false narrative a false comparison and it's entirely entirely a latter-day construct 
that has, I guess, sprung up over the last 25 years. There was no rivalry between Mary Seacole and Florence Nightingale. They're two very different women. Florence Nightingale would not for one moment have considered Mary a rival. And Mary certainly didn't set herself up to compete with Florence Nightingale. In any event, they were operating in entirely different places. Florence, for the most part, was out at the, the huge British hospital at Scutari, uh, on the Turkish mainland, and Mary was 300 miles away across the Black Sea, not far from the front lines, so uh, doing her own thing. They were two different women working in different spheres, working to entirely different methods, and as such, they never had a chance to compete or be rivals. They never really spent any time in each other's company, bar a 24-hour visit that Mary made to Constantinople on her way to the crime to Crimea. So it's us who try to construct this phony idea of competitiveness and rivalry between them, because there's this compulsion always to say, oh, she was better than her, or she wasn't as good as her, and Mary was the black Florence Nightingale. Well, she wasn't. Mary was not a black version of Florence Nightingale. She was her own woman. And I get fed up with it because it denigrates her. She was her own person who achieved things in her own right. And Florence, despite her antipathy towards Mary, was an extremely worthy woman who did a huge amount to improve and reform uh, medical services to the army after the war, who set up single-handedly set up women's nursing training, were, wrote the standard work on nursing that is has remained in print since God knows what, 1857, notes on nursing. Uh, you can't compare the two women. They're, they're completely different creatures, and, uh, and, and um, we should stop doing it. I, I really think the time has come to stop doing it. I agree. I mean, they each have their own place in history. There's no need to say one is better than the other. They existed. They were in a space together. Each has their own accomplishments. Celebrate those rather than trying to pit them against each other. It's not necessary. It's not what they did. And it's not something that we should be doing now. And, um, the, and the other thing also is you can't compare them because Florence Nightingale left for 14,000 letters. She wrote endless um, things about nursing. She was a gifted statistician. She supported public health reform and wrote endless articles about that. What do we have for Mary? We have a short little memoir and about two extant letters that are known of. There isn't a literary paper trail for Mary. You can't. There's a huge imbalance. Mary didn't write anything about her practice, her methods, her, her recipes for all her holistic symbols. So, again, you know, there's a huge imbalance in the terms of legacy for either woman. So you can't compare, compare them in the same breath because... They operated from different, um, completely different ends of the spectrum. I agree. And that's something that, you know, I wish 
more people would take into consideration rather than, as you say, the Black Florence Nightingale or the rivals. I don't know. That's just something I think that there's this concept. There has to be one against the other. They can't just each exist in their own space. The we only way... Sorry. Sorry, I interrupt you. The only way... The only way in which I would say there is a tacit kind of sense of rivalry is in one particular instance, and that is that everyone in Crimea called Mary Mother Seacole or Mrs. Seacole. They did look upon her as a mother figure. And Florence actually had named herself as the mother of the army. And I don't think she liked Mary usurping that epithet from her uh, whether you know she, whether she thought Mary had actively promoted herself as a mother to the soldiers well they all called her mother anyway they probably called her mother in Jamaica in fact I'm sure they did because in fact now I think of it they called her mammy which was the Jamaican equivalent of southern American mammy Right. Which, you know, that's what I was thinking as you were making those statements. I was like, that was probably how they referred to her in Jamaica. So that was something they just carried over. It was, it was a instinctive. Re- yes. But Florence, Florence <laughs> that I think did put Florence's back up because she saw herself as the mother of the British Army in a more kind of grandiose way. And she didn't like the fact that, that I think the title was slightly hijacked, not by Mary herself, but probably by the armor, the soldiers out there who called her Mother Seacole. Right. But some of them, you know, and we're talking about this, may have had a longer connection from Jamaica to her. So it well, just. They did. They did. Um, it was some of the army out there. Well, there was one officer, in fact, in Crimea who sadly was killed on one of the assaults on Sebastopol. Mary, had, I think, had delivered two of his babies, his wife's babies, in Jamaica because he'd been based out in Kingston. They had very close connections. People would go out and greet her and say, oh, hello, Mother Seacole, I remember you from Kingston in 1842 or whatever. They knew her really well, some of them. Right. So it was a long term connection there. And, you know, it wasn't. And they just they just kept that going in that environment. And they had those relationships that had been developed. But it's interesting. You say the word mother Seacole and she referred to them as her sons. Yet you believe that there is a daughter, um, Sally, that was also in Crimea with her. Well, Sally, Sally is very, very problematic. But this is one thing I do have to thank Florence Nightingale for, because Nightingale categorically said in private, absolutely in private, that Mary had had a daughter with her in Crimea, aged about 15. Now, I, I, during my research, found at least three accounts that mentioned meeting Mary and her daughter seeing them in Crimea, including the wonderful French chef, Alessia Soye, who went over to Crimea to set up, help set up these field kitchens and invented a sort of huge stew boiler thing for making stew for the troops. And he met Mary and he visited her at her establishment at Spring Hill. And he talks of Sally in his memoir. 
Well, her, you know, he assumed he she does. She's a yeah. beautiful young lady. Um, he talked to her being the fair maid of the Eastern War. She had dark hair and blue eyes. She was obviously uh, the product of uh, a, a relationship with a white officer, and Nightingale named him. But the trouble was she wasn't totally specific. But she said Mary had a daughter within Crimea, the child of Colonel Bunbury. Uh, and uh, I did a lot of digging on this because someone had mistakenly found the wrong Bunbury and went off down a, the wrong rabbit hole on it. But I think I know who the Bunbury in question was, but I can't prove it when he did the deed. Um, but, you know, there's tangent. this is the frustrating thing with researching Mary. In so many places, there's tangential evidence and you can't quite nail it. And I, I get very frustrated that I cannot categorically, without a shadow of doubt, say. But Mary was with, uh, Mary had Sally. Well, that's what Sawyer called her, Sally. There's a couple of other references to Sarah, which Sally is the pet name from it. Um, that, that the Sally was with her, but the awful, awful thing that I can't forgive Mary for, and I've spoken about her airbrushing people out the story, she airbrushed Sally completely out of the story in Wonderful Adventures. Uh, she never publicly made any mention of her at all, not a squeak, which means that the trail goes completely cold after the Crimean War because... I don't know what happened to Sally. Isn't that dreadful? We don't know what happened to her own daughter. I know. She just disappeared. You know, and I remember as a, I'm thinking back now, and I wonder if this is the same. You know, there was a young girl who was with her in Panama. Yeah, that's Sally hiding in plain sight. I said in the book, she talks about my little maid. Well, the My Little Maid was Sally, aged about, I think, about nine. Um, so, oh, yeah, and I found one or two fleeting glimpses where I think Sally was with her as an, an attendant or a companion, but I can't prove it. I cannot prove. I think Sally did come back to London with her mother for a while, but what happened to her? You see, the problem with her daughter is... Uh, Alexis Soy in his memoir assumed she used the name Seacole. Well, she wasn't the daughter of Mr. Seacole. If she'd been um, Mary's legitimate child by her husband, there would have been no reason to disguise her because she would have been baptised and there would have been some evidence. Um, but if she was the product of this affair with Colonel Bunbury, um, there would be every reason to disguise it and hide it. So, But the trouble is... I, she did not go by the name of Seacole, I don't think, for a moment. I think she was Sarah Grant. I think she used her mother's maiden name. But imagine if you've done genealogy, looking for a Sarah Grant is impossible. It's too common a name. That's a needle in a haystack it right there. A to it's, a, it's a needle in a, a, more than a haystack, a needle in a mountain, you know. Uh, you can't, you can't get, I've tried every permutation. I've tried searching this way and that way on censuses. Um, and I can't get anywhere. She just completely disappears. 
And I'm heartbroken because of all the, the gaps in Mary's story, that is the one I most wanted to fill. And I've been defeated by Mary. She's kept that secret. She's kept quite a few secrets from me. <laughs> but that one is the one I keep often saying, oh, Mary, for God's sake, just let me know what happened to Sally, please. <laughs> I know. Did she stay in England? Did she go back I to think she was. I don't know. Matt, we have no clues whatsoever, except I personally think that Sally was with Mary up until around the 18, early 1870s. Um, I just don't know. And I, one of the reasons with the book was to offer up everything I knew about Mary and say to readers, and I think I do say it in the acknowledgements or somewhere, if you know anything, have any new information, please email me because I find with every single book I've written, I always put at the end, please contact me at Helen Rabobort. Excuse me. <clears throat> at my website, um, and usually, <coughs> sorry, I just take a sip of water. Sorry, <coughs> I usually find with every book that someone contacts me with new information, <coughs> but so far nothing. And it's so frustrating because you want to know what happened to the daughter. Uh, where is she? You know, did she manage to, in, you know, integrate into mainstream society? Um, I was thinking, wonder, like, if her, how pale was her skin? Could she pass herself off? I think off? She, she could have been, um, uh, almost light-skinned because her mother was described as a, probably a quadroon. Mary was a quadroon. So, <clears throat> sorry, my throat's gone. So Sally would have been even paler. She might have passed as a white. A white. I don't know. I know nothing. I know. You want to know what happened to her, you know, because it's just like this figure that's just there and, you know, what happened to her? What happened, you know, to the rest well, of yeah. her life? But of course, the really big question for me, and the one that really frustrates, is: Did she marry? Did she have children? Could there be living descendants of Mary Seacole? But I don't know about. There might be. You never know. It, you know, it's so interesting because it's wonder. It is that question as you pose to listeners: Do you have any information out there? Because something could be sitting somewhere that you never thought, and who knows? It, stranger things have happened. But that is just the problem with Black history generally, and particularly with Mary's story, is that so often the records missing. Things things aren't there. Records weren't even kept, let alone destroyed. And so, weirdly, this is the first of 16 books that I've published where I haven't had anybody write to me with any new information. Nothing. So it makes me feel almost that by default, like it or not, and I'm not, you know, I'm not boasting, I, in a way, am the sole repository of all the information and knowledge about Mary that has been found and is likely to be found because I have scoured and scoured over 20 years. 
and I think I've pretty much found everything there is to find, unless there is something languishing in an unpublished or un uncatalogued archive somewhere. My only hope is something turns up from an archive or from private family papers, because I can't believe there aren't more people out there who maybe have a letter sent to an ancestor from Mary Seacole. She was very articulate, very literate. She wrote beautiful hand. She must have written other letters to people. But maybe they just were were not kept. You know, people thought, who's this Mary Seacole? Do we need to keep that letter written to Granny? No, chuck it out. Yeah, that's toss. That's garbage right there. That goes with that. Uh, so the, the survivals on almost nil. Mary kept a, a book full of all the the letters and testimonials she was sent by people she'd helped. That didn't survive her death. She probably had a res- recipe book of some kind with all her, you know, <clears throat> her, her, her medicines that she concocted. That didn't survive because she had no very close relatives. Um, I think it was her nephew's wife who looked after her at her deathbed and probably was responsible for clearing out her rooms. And it probably all got chucked. Apart from the valuable things or valuable, important things like her medals and the bust that was sent to Louisa Grant in Jamaica. Wow. And you know those her herbal herbal remedies, and just to have that would be so amazing to see how she used her doctoring. What that well, was we to can, her. We we can make a good stab at what concoctions she made because there were was a very good book published in eighteen oh one by Thomas Dancer, which is a pharmacy of all the Jamaican herbs and and woods and chip bark chippings and this, that, and the other that we use in Jamaican doctressing. So we can make a pretty good calculated guess on, on what kind of um, things she made up. And, of course, several people said in Crimea, including a couple of army doctors, that she made drinks from pomegranate, which is a well-known astringent for the use of people with uh, fevers enteric, and enteric disease. So... She used pomegranate in, in Crimea because it grew all over Asia Minor and she would have easily got pomegranates in from Constantinople or in Crimea itself because they grew everywhere. She was very talented, but the issues that we're speaking about, that goes to one of the reasons why I believe she disappeared from the historical record because there are no records. Well, firstly, there's no paper trail for Mary. And also, she didn't have um, a family legacy, a family to keep the flame alive. Uh, Sally disappeared. So maybe she died young. I don't know. But, uh, you know, Florence left an enormous legacy in an archive. And when you don't have a paper trail, the story, the trail can go cold very quickly. And it did for her. You know, and then, of course, she gets rediscovered, um, per se. And now she's once again coming more into the spotlight again. And um, hopefully she can finally take her place 
as that icon that she was in her own right, not compared to anybody else, but just her Mary Seacole for what she did and what she accomplished in her life. Yeah, but I think what what we what really is matters about Mary is her significance to black people, particularly black uh, nurses, people in the nursing profession, who see her very much as a source of inspiration, um, as, as as a sort of hands on carer, and in that in and it's in that sense where she think I think she endures because she wasn't some some fantastic pioneer nurse like Florence Nightingale. We and again people overstate the claims for her in that regard. It's what she represents as a good Samaritan, a caregiver, a woman of great empathy and very loving and very motherly who would never turn away a sick person, who would always help someone in need. And that, those are the aspects of her character that are universal and make her iconic, I think. Yes, she had a heart, and it was there, and she definitely showed it with her patients. Um, she was willing to show that empathy and be there with them when they needed her. Um, and that is a very, very important component. You know, the bedside manner, um, that is something that often lacks for the most part for a lot of yeah. people. But I mean, she Florence, that. Was, Florence was clinical and, and efficient and forceful, and she worked out the methodology and the practice of nursing. And we shall always be grateful to her for that. And I don't seek in any way to take away from Florence to augment Mary's reputation, but some people do, and I don't want that to happen. I think we have to look at them separately in their own right for what they did and what they achieved. So Mary, I think, is very much um, in the spirit of the Good Samaritan, in the biblical sense, actually. She was, and I mean, she she was a force of nature, Oh. Uh, that not much could stop even when she became ill herself there was you know there were moments uh, but yeah you know she got back up and she kept moving um she did not really want to stop so i want to ask you what do you want readers to take away from the book i, I that that spirit i want readers to take away that sense of Mary's indomitability, her feistiness, her refusal to accept no for an answer from anybody, and the way in which, as an extraordinary woman of her time, she overturned all the conventions, sexual, racial, social. She did her own thing in her own way. She was fiercely independent, a brave, go-getting, and extraordinarily generous and kind and I think you know let's just forget about trying to inflate her as some kind of woman who invented nursing she didn't invent nursing Mary didn't make any inflated claims for her own practice at all we have to be very careful of what we now impose retrospectively 
on her in you know from our own point of view and in our own terms of reference but i think we have to judge mary in terms of her own time and what other women were allowed to do in the 1850s where other women could go how many women could just get on a ship and sail halfway around the world uh, she just was an extraordinary pioneer of I just think her indomitability is probably the key, the key essence of Mary. I agree. Readers, I implore you, please go out and pick up a copy of In Search of Mary Seacole to learn about this amazing Black cultural icon. And you also, one of the things that a historian myself, you, this is a book for general audience it's for scholars academics everyone should go out and pick up a copy of this book thank you for joining me today dr rapaport you're welcome and thank you for inviting me